We have sung it together many times. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Do we believe it? Is it true? It most certainly is. And as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage his dear friend Timothy to persevere in the faith, in the face of great suffering, that's the message Paul is conveying from his own personal experience. This is the man who claimed that he knew how to be content in all situations, in all circumstances, whether in adversity or prosperity. And he proved that it was true over and over again by his faithfulness through the many trials and the tribulations that came upon him because of his devotion to God and because of his determination to preach the good news. Now we have Paul in his farewell discourse wanting to pass this faith resilience on to Timothy. He wants Timothy to know what he knows in order to respond to hardship as he has responded, even from prison. And Timothy is no Paul, but he doesn't have to be. In his weakness, God has provided everything he needs to face the days, to be strong, and to endure. Our Father, we come to your word now ready, eager, hopeful. We want to hear what you have to say to us. We ask by the power of your spirit to help us relate your word to our hearts and our lives, that it might affect the change you intend, and we might be the people that bring you glory all the more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage today picks up in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, right on the heels of verse 5, where Paul has um, made reference to Timothy's faith, which he's, he calls a sincere faith. If you're reading in a King James Version, it would be an unfeigned faith. It's a word that means without hypocrisy, which is to say that the faith that Timothy possesses is legit, that Timothy is the real deal, a true Christian. His devotion to truth and his devotion to righteousness no doubt became evident to the Apostle Paul through the missionary work that the two of them did together. And in that time, their bond superseded that of just missionary and ministry partners and more accurately came to resemble that of father and son. This letter is addressed to Timothy, my beloved child. In his first letter, Paul wrote something similar, calling Timothy my true child in the faith. So as a co-laborer in the gospel and a spiritual father, the Apostle Paul has had a ringside seat, so to speak, into Timothy's life. And he has special insight into this man's strengths, and we might assume as well, into his struggles, into his weaknesses and temptations. He knows that Timothy is the possessor of a sincere faith. So Timothy has a sincere faith, but it's not a perfect one. He is as we are all, a work in progress. Paul writes to his friend from prison in Rome. It is here that Emperor Nero has slowly begun losing his mind. The persecution of Christians is beginning to really ramp up. And Timothy has now become the pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus, which is a city that both he and Paul had spent time ministering in 
and to which Timothy now has returned. By this time, Paul's days are numbered, and he knows it. If it's possible, he would like to see his dear friend Timothy come to visit before he dies. In the meantime, as he sits in a jail cell, remembering and praying, he puts his heart to paper, and he pens a letter to his friends. What would you write to a child you may never see again on this side of things? What would you write to a loved one halfway across the world who probably won't make it to your terminal bedside for a final embrace? I suspect it would be something for their good. I doubt it would be drivel about the weather. <laughs> That's what Paul's letter is filled with. Counsel for Timothy's good. Chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, that goes back, because you have a sincere faith. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Some say here that the gift Paul refers to is, is a specific spiritual gift, like a gift for ministry. And some say it refers to the Spirit himself. Timothy would know exactly what Paul was talking about, and we don't need to. We don't have to identify the specifics, actually, of this gift in order to grasp what Paul is saying here, because it really is simply a call to action. It is a call to arms. In a little while, Paul's going to use some military imagery. He's going to talk about being a good soldier for Christ, a soldier in active duty. But now this is a directive. It begins as a directive to Timothy to put into practice, to, to not be passive in developing and using what it is that he has received from the Lord. It's not going to be enough in the days ahead for Timothy to, to lay low. It's not going to be enough for Timothy to fly under the radar He's not going to be able to nurse some kind of smoldering faith in the context of the challenges and the oppositions that he's about to face. He's going to have to fan into flame the gift that God has given him. He must, as the message paraphrase puts it, keep ablaze the gift that has been given to him. He's got to feed fire. God has gifted Timothy. It's Timothy's job to maximize the gift so I want to ask, beloved, how has God gifted you? Every believer we know is gifted. Gifted with the Holy Spirit himself. Gifted with at least one spiritual gift. What spiritual gift or gifts do you possess? And what are you doing with them? And how are you ensuring that what God has given you remains active and remains deployed and is used truly in the service of Christ for the building up of the church, which is what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 tells us this is all about. Because God is a giver of good and perfect gifts. And as Luther put it in the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. The spirit and the gifts are ours. He gives them to us and he gives us all we need for the tasks that he calls us to in order to live for his glory. God gives us these gifts so that we could use them. The gift of salvation. The gift of his son. The gift of his Holy Spirit. 
He gives us a light to shine. Jesus would talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? A light to shine, not to hide under a basket. And so this is Paul's advice to his dear friend. Don't let the fire of your faith die out. Don't let the spirit that is in you be quenched. Fan it into flame. Let it burn hot. Let it be obvious to everyone. And then Paul supplies the why and the how to do this. Because he says God didn't give us a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity. That word that we translate fear it infers cowardice. And in other literature of that period is used to refer to those who would flee from battle. God, God didn't give us the kind of spirit of retreat and shrinking back that flees from battle. God didn't make us to be deserters. At the end of chapter 1, Paul gives us the names of a couple people who deserted him, who fled the true faith. But they aren't the only ones. Chapter 1, verse 15, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And later in chapter 4, Paul writes this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Oh, Paul does not want Timothy to be part of that crowd. He doesn't want Timothy to be named among those who fell back or would desert him. And Timothy doesn't have to. Even if he's really afraid about what's going on, he doesn't have to succumb to that fear, which is natural when opposition arises and threats become real. Because God has provided what he needs. This is what Paul is getting across. It is not a spirit of cowardice. It is not a, a spirit of dread. It is, it is not a spirit of retreat. And it's more than an attitude, and it's more than a disposition that one has. It's not just stubbornness and determination. Timothy, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. You have the power that you need to face anything. Don't we, Christians? Remember what Jesus told his disciples when, when he instructed, instructed them to wait in Jerusalem? For the Spirit. He said, you will receive power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And remember that fearful, mousy uh, group of believers gathered together when the Spirit fell? What did they do? They spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem. You couldn't shut them up. You couldn't stop them. They could not have been more brave nor courageous because the Spirit of power was on them. They spoke with the boldness that only God could provide. They had it, and that's what they did, and that's what the Spirit does to those who will live by the Spirit. And that is how Timothy's going to fan into flame the gift of ministry that he's been given, the gift of the Spirit, by relying on that very same Spirit of God in him. The Spirit gives us courage where it is needed, as God's children, so we can be faithful. It's a spirit of power. It provides the ability for any task. It's a spirit of love. It provides the purest motivation for doing anything good. 
And it's a spirit of self-control, Paul would go on to say, which is a way of saying steadiness or level-headedness or calmness. In other words, the means to be an effective pastor in this context, especially in times of trial. You've got all that you need. You have got the power. You have got the ability. You have got the motivation. And you have got the means all in the Holy Spirit. And the same as you and I, Timothy, needed to know these things. He was not especially bold by nature. He was not necessarily assertive, not a particularly confident man. In writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16.10, Paul seeks accommodation for Timothy. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy, I think, would be a little bit like me in that crowd, the guy that's standing with his back against the wall. One gets a sense that he might have been a little bit introverted. Not a man who wants the spotlight. Not, not necessarily comfortable around crowds. Definitely uncomfortable around strangers. And he appears to have been an emotional man. Remember, as we started out this letter, Paul remembers Timothy's tears. He seems sensitive. And he was also physically frail. Paul wrote to him in his first letter, 1 Timothy 5.23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You get the idea that Timothy was nervous and his belly rolled a lot. All that to say is that ministry life was definitely hard on Timothy. And in terms of temperament, and in terms of constitution, that is, if he were to say, let's take a psychological assessment, or a, a vocational assessment, or a strengths-based assessment, then the, 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 the title of pastor wouldn't just jump right up there and say, well, that's what you ought to be. Not at all for Timothy. It's not even going to be near the top of the list. But that doesn't mean he missed his calling. He actually, he did not miss his calling. Verse 9, Paul affirms Timothy's calling. What that does mean is sometimes, friends, God calls us into situations situation where the wisdom and the skills and the resources that we naturally possess are not going to be enough for the task. What we bring to the table isn't sufficient. And that's not a bad thing. I know we may hate that, but it's not a bad thing. In their preaching, the word uh, commentary, Kent Hughes, Brian Chapel, write this. If you sense that God is calling you to do something far beyond your natural capabilities, you can take heart from Timothy's life. In truth, God always calls us to minister beyond our natural endowments, no matter how great they are. You might be naturally eloquent, but your giftedness will never be sufficient to preach the word. You may be merciful by nature, but that's not enough to be able to live out the full call of God to be merciful. Take heart. God's call is always too great for us to do in ourselves. But if he calls you, he will equip you and enable you to do it. It is very likely that from time to time, Timothy felt inadequate for the work that God was calling him to do. And Paul reminds him that God in him is sufficient. Because he has a sincere faith, because he has the 
the gift of God, because he has the Spirit of God. Paul exhorts Timothy, verse 8, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Have you ever been ashamed of the testimony of the Lord? Have you ever hung your head like Peter, who denied Jesus when it was his turn to stand up for Jesus? I think most of us can honestly relate to the fear that accompanies our efforts at witnessing. And how easy it is at times to shrink back or to say nothing. Which Does that betray a shame? Are we ever ashamed of the Lord? Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. That can be tough. As one writer put it. In a world hostile to the Christian faith, it takes courage to say that Christ is the only way to heaven. It takes courage to believe in the authority of the Bible and to be unashamed of the gospel. Courage is essential for the Christian life. If, you, if you've even felt frightened by adversaries of the gospel or discouraged by daunting circumstances, you're not alone. Fear and discouragement are common enemies to all Christians, including the original recipient of this letter, Timothy. Fear and discouragement are common enemies to all Christians. Timothy's father in the faith, most influential encourager, is in jail. And he's likely going to be killed. That's kind of scary, don't you think? And Timothy himself is pastoring in a place that's not only hostile to Christianity. Uh, he is historically encountered there and continues to presently and will uh, be faced with challenges to his preaching by false teachers. People who are riling up the whole congregation, misleading many. You know, Timothy's never had the home field advantage in Ephesus, but now he's up against serious threats to his ministry. He's probably not very popular. And given his natural bent, it makes sense that he might be tempted to walk back on some of the things that Paul says. But the apostle jumps in. Don't do it. Don't fall back. Don't be ashamed. The message paraphrase says, don't be embarrassed to speak up. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, he said, nor of me, his prisoner. Would Timothy ever be ashamed of Paul? I guess most of us, if our dad was in jail, would feel a little bit of shame over that. Might assume he'd had at least some guilt, done something wrong, committed some kind of offense if he's incarcerated. And if we didn't believe that and maintained his innocence, we know others certainly would think that of him. He's in jail for a reason. He's done something wrong. And that might cause us to be ashamed. People talking about our dad who's in jail. You can bet people were talking about the Apostle Paul in jail in a pejorative, in a negative way. What kind of a true messenger of God goes to jail? If he were truly of God, God would keep him out of jail. If he were truly walking with the Lord, no bad things would come his way. This is how people talk sometimes. This is what people think. He must be there because he deserves it. But did you catch how Paul described his situation? Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Whose prisoner? It's a little word here, but it's a significant word. His. Paul doesn't see himself primarily as a prisoner of Rome. Catch that. He's not a prisoner of Rome. As one commentator put it, it may be Caesar's prison. 
But Paul is not Nero's captive. He is Christ's. He is Christ's prisoner. Friends, if ever there was a, a lesson for us to not define ourselves according to our circumstances, this would be it. Paul is in chains. To say things are not going the way that he's drawn them up would be an understatement. Do you ever get to those places in your life where you go, this was not the plan. But the hardship and the injustice that he faces does not change who he is. And it does not change whose he is. He's not in prison because he serves an impotent God. Or because he has failed in his assignment. He is Christ's prisoner. And he is suffering for doing right. The same way that his Savior did. In a hard place because of his faithfulness, not despite it. And therefore, he is not ashamed. He says, my conscience is clear. Paul is a prisoner, but he's done nothing disgraceful. God has him right where he wants him for reasons that only God grasps. He has ordained that Paul should suffer this way. He has ordained that Paul should suffer this way. And Paul is willing to be his prisoner. But he does not have to suffer alone. He doesn't have to bear this burden alone. The apostle extends an invitation to Timothy. This isn't, Timothy, this isn't something for you to avoid. It's something for you to embrace. Still verse 8, share in suffering for the gospel. Don't be ashamed of my suffering. Share, share it. Join me in it. King James, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. An invitation to suffer. Oh, joy. <laughs> no one likes to suffer. No one wants to suffer. We have a strong, natural aversion to suffering. And yet, as we read our Bibles, we see that, that oftentimes God has a purpose in suffering. The suffering that we work so hard to come out from under is so very often the very means by which God is using to shape us into the likeness of his Son. Suffering is something we rant about, something we rail against, and yet the Bible's command is for us to count it all joy when we come upon these trials. Beloved, we need a better category for suffering. At least the church, the Christians, we need a better category, a better understanding of suffering than the one that the world provides. The world is saying, run, flee. And the Bible is saying, no. This is the crucible. This is where God is shaping you. This is where he's forming you. Trust in him. Sometimes it is good to suffer when it is for a cause, when it is for principle. So in this case, Paul invites Timothy to share in the suffering. Again, not meaninglessly, not arbitrarily. You don't need to suffer for no reason, but share in suffering for the gospel. What does it mean to suffer for the gospel? It means 
bearing the consequences of fidelity. It means absorbing the blows and the losses, the hurts and the betrayals for being willing to identify with Jesus. Paying the price for refusing to abandon him or his ways. If standing firm for Christ and holding fast to the sound teaching of scripture causes you pain, Paul would say, then bear it. That's the message. Bear it. Take it. Embrace it. Choose it. Choose it over the fleshly desire to seek relief at all costs. Share in the suffering for the gospel. Followers of Jesus can expect to suffer to some degree. In our reading plan this week in Matthew 8, we saw a would-be disciple come to Jesus. And, and he says, as many do, I'll follow you wherever you go. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Not trying to discourage him, I'm sure, but saying, listen, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about if you're just willing to say, I'll go wherever you go. You don't know what you're in for. In another place, Jesus would essentially say, you must count the cost before you make this commitment. Any wise person would, because it isn't going to always be easy. In fact, sometimes it's going to be really, really hard. You can expect to suffer to some degree if you want to follow Jesus. We will read Shortly, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can expect that if you want to live a godly life that is different from the world that is out there, at some level, you're going to pay for it. There is a price to be paid for following Jesus. Every believer will pay it in some way. And in the context of 2 Timothy and the example of Paul and in the need uh, of Timothy to be encouraged by him, we note this, pastors will suffer particularly. Pastors should expect that. They probably should have a seminary class or two, Suffering 101, Suffering 202. On those dark days when an email comes with harsh words that have nothing to do with the work we've done, writes pastor and author Jeremy Wrightball, or when we watch another person we've loved willfully destroy every relationship around them, including with us, we are tempted to doubt our calling or despair over the progress of our work. It even produces a temptation to change our perspectives and practices on what faithful and holy ministry truly is. The afflictions of pastoral ministry make us wonder if we're actually doing it right. Our aversion to suffering makes us want to fix the source of the pain or, as we can, avoid it altogether. Suffering disorients us in our faith. Doubt creeps in. Questions are raised. We wonder where God is. Why is he allowing this to happen? And why won't he smite our foes? Suffering for Christ's sake is an occupational hazard of pastoral ministry. And it can be debilitating, especially if it takes one by surprise. People trying to be faithful and trying to do the right thing don't necessarily expect to be rewarded with trouble. And some may even naively expect the opposite. So Paul doesn't want Timothy to, to fall into that trap, to be un, unaware, to be ignorant, or to be blindsided by suffering. He invites him to expect it. And he not only invites him to expect it, he invites him to share it willingly. But by the power of God. He's not just saying, gee, Timothy, you're kind of a snowflake. 
you think you could toughen yourself up a little bit, you need a little thicker skin if you're going to make it. No. He says, by the power of God. Again, the focus of, of, that we should have in our trials is to be on God. God who gives us everything we need to endure them to his glory. Knowledge of our weaknesses, knowledge of our inadequacies and our failings, it can be terrifying if we don't remember that God's strength is perfect. And God is faithful. God is faithful. So Paul writes this letter. And in this letter, he writes about the failure of his friends and his partners in ministry to stay with him, the deserters. Many deserted him, but he writes this, 2 Timothy 4.17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Remember that. All that you have, all that you need, you have in the presence of the Lord, who will stand by you and who will strengthen you. God is faithful to supply our needs in the moment. So knowing that, that is, that is how we persevere. That is how we endure faithfully. That is, that is how we carry on in his power, not in the assessment of my own strength. Because when I assess my own strength, there are going to be times when I will say, I can't do it. You can't. But Christ in you can. Remember when Paul said in Philippians that he had learned to be content in all situations. Whether he was abounding or whether he was in need, whether he was hungry or enjoyed seasons of plenty, do you remember the key to his ability to be content in all circumstances. Some of you, it's probably your life verse. It's Philippians 4, 13. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. This is Paul saying the same thing in a different way, in a different place. But it is the same thing. You can do it because Christ is in you. How else but by the power of God does any man Stay sustained in the faith and prayerful and looking forward in a Roman prison cell. It is the Spirit of God in Paul, in him. It enables him to continue, enables him to be content and to play his part in the purposes of God, even though he has no idea necessarily what they are. He doesn't have to know what the circumstances are. He doesn't have to know the why. And why is that? We read that. Megan read it. Because I know what? Whom I have believed. I don't know the what's and the where's and the why for's. I don't know any of that. But I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able. See, that's, that's the ticket. That is the thing. Don't worry about your own bankruptcy. Don't worry about your own inadequacy. Don't worry about what you can't do. Anything God is calling you to do, he's going to equip you to do. You can do anything through Christ who strengthens you. Keep in mind who it is. Who it is that you love. Who it is that has saved you. Who it is that you serve. And those, the need for the details falls away. I don't understand what's going on in my life. But I know who's in charge of it. And I trust him. That's the posture of a Christian in the face of suffering. So, so Paul wants Timothy to grasp that, 
to make it real, just, just the way that I want that for myself and want that for you as well. And what does he do to reinforce what he's talking about? But he brings us right back to the gospel. Because if Paul is able to be content and serve out the purposes of God, whether he is on the mission field or in a prison cell or at the executioner's block, which is where he's headed. He's able to do that. Why? He tells us how to face suffering. God is overall. The call is to be willing to face suffering for the one, verses 9 and 10, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's interesting here that one's commitment to the gospel, that's what he's saying, Timothy, stay committed to the gospel, can be the source of one's suffering. I won't back down and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to betray my God. It's also the grounds for the Christian's endurance. So the gospel may be the cause of the suffering or fidelity to the gospel may be the cause of suffering, but it is also the grounds for Christian endurance. Why not quit? Why not join the ranks of the deserters? Why, why not be counted among those who would flee the battle? Paul will say it most plainly in chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Why not give up? Why not throw in the towel? Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember the one who suffered and conquered. Remember the one who suffered and conquered. Remember that God has saved us for his purposes, Paul says. Not, not just yours. This life is about finding out his purposes and walking in them. He saved us, Paul says, not because of our works, not because of anything great inside of us, but he saved us because of his grace, which means he saved us because he loves us. And he showered upon us that which we do not deserve, which is mercy and forgiveness. This was ours in Christ before time began. That's something I'd have a hard time plumbing those depths, wouldn't you? And yet it is true. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. This grace was ours before time began and has been manifest now, Paul says, in the appearing of our Savior come to earth. In dying, he bore our sin and in being raised from the grave, he defeated what men fear most, which is death. There is no reason then that anyone in Christ should fear, never should fear what man can do to us. Timothy can endure suffering from the gospel and in the power of the gospel if he will remember Jesus. And if you will keep in mind the holy calling that God has placed on his life, and so can you. Maybe you have been reviled by unbelieving family members. Maybe you are mocked in your circle of friends because of what you believe or what you will or will not do. Maybe you are lonely because you refuse to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. Whatever form of suffering for the gospel you might be experiencing whatever price is to be paid for standing firm for Christ and fulfilling his calling in your life. Listen, church, all that is needed for you to faithfully endure, his hand has provided. Your gifting, his spirit, his son, the promise of everlasting life. 2 Timothy is a pastoral epistle, but one does not have to be a pastor to relate to it or to benefit from it. 
Anyone can have a faith that grows cold. Anyone can, can have gifts that are set aside and need to be dusted off and fanned back into flame. Anyone can experience a temptation to quit. Anyone can be overwhelmed by fear and intimidation. Anyone can struggle with questions pertaining to one's ability to carry on. Paul's message to Timothy then is a message to us as well. Endure. Persevere. Remember the good news. All you need, his hand will provide. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for this encouraging word from Paul. In truth, we are in awe that a man facing his own death could be so selfless. It reminds us very much of his Savior and our Lord Jesus, who taught until he could teach no more, who from the cross tended to the needs of others, who, as the Apostle John tells us, loved them to the end. Oh, we thank you for Paul's faithful love to Timothy, and he loves him to the end. And we pray, too, that we might be those sorts of people, much less concerned with ourselves, much more concerned with you, your glory, your gospel, and how it is we can bring light and life through Christ to those whose paths we cross. Lord, give us the faith we lack. Give us the courage we need. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in conclusion our final hymn, I Know Who I Have Believed.
benediction this morning is from the book of Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week.